Hey, what's going on, everyone? We are so glad you're choosing to take time out of your day to listen to our sermons. Our prayer for you is that these messages would not replace your belonging to a local church, but would only be supplemental in your walk with Jesus. With that being said, we love you, and we hope you enjoy the message today. Well, good morning again, and welcome to South Valley. It's great to see you guys today. Thanks for joining us in person. Thank you also for joining us in homes in the Antelope Valley for our watch parties, for joining us online. We're so grateful for you. Thanks for worshiping with us. Will you guys help me welcome the AV this morning? They're, they're joining us from afar, and I'm just so grateful for that. Hey, if you guys have a Bible, go ahead and turn right now to the book of Esther. Today we're in Esther chapter 4. We're continuing our sermon series titled God's Hidden Presence. And today is it's the most famous chapter in the book. This is a turning point in Esther's life. And, and my encouragement to everybody is every week to bring a Bible. Whether you use, if you use an app on your phone or an iPad, that's cool too. But, but follow along with us. And if you ever need a Bible, we, we have them in the lobby. We'd love to get you a Bible. We are in Esther chapter 4 this morning, and the title of today's sermon is Defining Moments. What is a defining moment? Well, according to Forbes magazine, a defining moment is a point in your life when you're urged to make a pivotal decision or when you experience something that fundamentally changes you. We've, we've experienced in our lives different defining moments. These are things like getting married or starting a new job or beginning a new business partnership or paying off a debt or finishing school or retiring or having a baby or having the second baby or having the fifth baby or, you know, or starting a campus in the Antelope Valley. The list goes on and on and on. These are highly emotional events that formatively transform us. My last major defining moment was when I moved here to Lemoore. I remember, I vividly remember coming here on my candidating weekend. So I was supposed to come and preach and then I'd be voted upon after that service. And I remember going to that service and I didn't know if I'd get voted yes or no. And I, I just was thinking, you know what, God, whatever you want to do with my family, whatever you want to do with my life, my, my hands are open to you. Our hearts are open to you. And that was a defining moment in my life. And, and we, we accepted that position and we moved out here and that has forever changed my family. It changed me. It changed my wife. It changed my kids. And I just want to say it's changed us in very good ways. I'm so grateful for that defining moment. What about you guys? Have you had any defining moments? Maybe it was when you joined the Navy. Any sailors in the room this morning? Can we give it up for our Navy folks today? Yeah, that's that's a big defining moment. Maybe it was when you enrolled in college. Maybe it was when you moved across the country to California. These are big moments with massive repercussions. They transform us. Well, today's passage is the centerpiece of our book, and it contains three major defining moments. Last week, we learned that the fate of the Jews was sealed by the signet ring of King Xerxes. Haman had a plot to annihilate the Jewish people. 
He had a plan for their destruction. Now in Esther chapter four, Esther is gonna be forced to evaluate whether she's prepared to institute her own counter plan for salvation, the salvation of the Jewish people. This was the moment that Esther was made for. All of the events of her life had perfectly positioned her for such a time as this. The question is, would she seize the moment or would she let it pass by? Let's go ahead and pray and we'll jump into it this morning. Father God, I wanna thank you again for just such a moving morning of worship. I thank you for the chance to remember what your son accomplished for us on the cross through communion. And as we even just mentioned our sailors a moment ago, I do pray for those who are about to be leaving soon on uh, Carl Vinson and, and are prepared to, to be shipped out. And we just pray your protection over them. We pray for those who are left behind that you'd love the families and just support the families and that us as a church, we would know how to be there for our sailors. We love them and appreciate them so much. I also want to say thank you again for those who are watching online and those in the AV this morning who are joining us from afar. I thank you for the work you're doing there. I'm grateful for every person that is a part of this amazing church. And Jesus, you promised to build your church and that the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. And so we rest in that promise today. Bless our time together in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, up to this point in the story, our main character, Queen Esther, has been passive at best. We were first introduced to Queen Esther in chapter two, and, and one of the ways that we described her was lukewarm. Lukewarm, just so you know, is not a good description because Jesus, in the book of Revelation, he calls out his people for being neither hot nor cold, for being lukewarm. And, and what he says about those who are lukewarm, who are half in and half out, what does he say about them? He will do what? Spit them out of his mouth. Esther was this beautiful young woman who was trying to live life in two different worlds. She had one foot in the Jewish world, the world in which she was raised, the world of her fathers, of her heritage, and then she had the other foot firmly planted in the opulent world of the Persian court into which she was thrust. She was living as a Jew and as a Persian, but if you know her story, she was living more Persian than Jew. When we were introduced to Esther, she was introduced with two names. Her Jewish name is this beautiful name, Hadassah, means myrtle. But in the story, she hides behind her Jewish name and she goes by her pagan name instead, the name Esther, a name that comes from the Babylonian goddess Ishtar. She was this beautiful woman with a secret identity and a foot in two different worlds. Nothing about Esther's life on the surface screamed, I worship Yahweh. Nothing about her life on the surface told the people around her that she was a God-fearer, that she was uh, obedient to the Torah, that she was, in fact, a Jew. She dressed like a Persian. She ate like a Persian. She went by a Persian name. She married a Persian pagan king who five years into the marriage still didn't know she was Jewish. That's the epitome of lukewarm. Okay, if you marry somebody and five years later, they finally say, hey, I think I might be a Christian. I've been a Christian. I'll, you'd be like, wait, are you really a Christian? 
Five years in, I haven't seen you act like a Christian. Now you're telling me you've been worshiping God this whole time. Her faith was hidden. It was hidden at best. She, her faith never saw the light of day. Up to this point, she had relied on her good looks to get ahead. But chapter four is a defining moment in her life. It's in this chapter where she's transformed from a beautiful, compliant young woman to a powerful leader of the Jews. It's in this moment where she's transformed from, you know, just this pretty person that people are fond of because of how she looks to somebody who is bold and courageous and actually becomes a political leader and a figure of salvation. And I want to point that out because I've told you throughout this series that Esther was a work in progress. And that is not to shame Esther. That is to help us identify with Esther because I don't know about you, but I am a work of progress. This place is a place for you to learn and to grow. We don't expect people to start out at the pinnacle, at the mountain peak, fully devoted and fully developed into the image of Christ. We know that following Jesus is a process. There's this process of sanctification as we put one foot in front of the other and we learn to trust God with our lives and trust God with our futures and and we surrender things at his feet and we begin to discover who we really are. The more we worship, the more we step out, we discover who he is and who we are and we step into our destiny and calling and that's exactly what's happening with this young woman, Esther. Well, this passage has three defining moments. The first defining moment is Mordecai's distress. Turn to Esther 4, verse 1. This is what it says. When Mordecai, this is Esther's cousin, learned all that had been done, he tore his clothes he put on sackcloth. That's a really uncomfortable shirt, okay? This is like wearing a burlap sack around. He puts on sackcloth and ashes. It's a sign of repentance and weeping and gnashing of teeth. He, he went out into the midst of the city and he's crying aloud. Everybody can hear him in a bitter cry. He's, he's got the ugly face going on and everything, okay? Ugly cry going on. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate because no one's allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, wherever the king's command, the command to annihilate the Jews, wherever the king's command and decree reached, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. In chapter 3, Haman, the villain of the story, Haman the horrible, as I called him, turned his beef with one man, a Jewish man named Mordecai, into a beef with all the Jews. Mordecai refused to bow. Mordecai uh, disrespected him, and he was such an angry man that he turned his beef with this man into a beef with everybody. And instead of just getting rid of Mordecai, he wanted to annihilate every Jew from the kingdom, all of Persia. And it, it... It's a picture of his name, in fact. The the name Haman sounds a lot like the Hebrew word chama. Chama means heat or poison or wrath. That was Haman. Haman was a hothead. He was a despicable man who poisoned everything he touched. He manipulated King Xerxes to write an edict of annihilation against the Jewish people. And when Xerxes stamped it with his stamp of approval, he didn't know that in that moment he signed his own death warrant for his own wife. 
He sealed the law with his signet ring. He sent it out to the entire kingdom, which stretched all the way into the land of Israel, where Ezra and Nehemiah were in the process of rebuilding the temple and the walls and establishing worship once again. And then after the law goes out, the ruling goes out, he sits down to binge drink with his friend Haman for the rest of the night and the kingdom goes into chaos. So we're left with wondering, after this goes out, how does Mordecai react? What does he do? How does he respond? Well, what we see in the text is that Mordecai weeps. Have you ever felt so helpless about something that all you could do was just weep? Okay, he didn't care that his ugly crying face was, was coming out in front of everybody. He just let it all out. I don't know if you have ever been there, like, you know, like crying Jordan. Have you guys ever seen that meme? You just, your ugly face comes out and you just can't, you don't care what people think about you, what people see. You, you just have to let it out. You just have to cry and weep. And Mordecai in this passage, it's a defining moment because instead of running and hiding, he actually repents and he weeps. Why though was Mordecai so emotional? He was emotional because his personal conflict with one man brought the entire Jewish nation into jeopardy. Haman, the villain, was an anti-Semite. He hated the Jews. And his hatred towards the Jews mimicked his ancestors' hatred towards the Jews from hundreds of years prior, generation after generation. This bad blood between these two tribes was passed down from person to person, and it was reflected in the relationship of Haman and Mordecai. And Mordecai, when he realized that this beef was going to result in consequences for all of his kin, he was so broken by the hatred of Haman that all he could do was weep and pray and cry and cover himself and sackcloth and ashes and weep at the gate of the kingdom. Which leads to an important takeaway this morning. And it's this. Being sad is not bad. Did you know that? I'm a huge believer in the joy of the Lord, but I also know that sometimes it's okay to just cry. I think I actually cried in communion and so, you know that's kind of embarrassing at times. But sometimes it's okay to weep. Sometimes it's okay to, to lose your bearings and to, to let it all out. Weeping in sackcloth and ashes is something other great men and women have done throughout Scripture. Think about Joshua and Caleb when they go to scope out the promised land and they, they come back and the people say, no, we want to go back to Egypt. We don't want to inherit the land. They, they tear their clothes and they weep and they mourn and they cover themselves in sackcloth and ashes. Think about David. David lost many people close to him, friends, a child, people he loved. And every time he would lose somebody, he would weep and mourn and he would tear his clothes and he'd weep in sackcloth and ashes and, and he would cry out. And often he would pin the most beautiful Psalms that we have in the world because those moments of his heart just being on display. Or think about Ezra, when Ezra's rebuilding and, and restoring the people of Israel during the time of Esther and he realizes that the priests and the the Levites are intermarrying once again with pagan religions. And so he rips his clothes in distress and he weeps. And even the Persians of Susa, when they were defeated by the Greeks, ripped their clothes and they wept and they mourned. I know this might sound odd, but I think that crying should be more common in church. 
although I'm a firm believer in the joy of the Lord, I also believe that Christian joy should never look like this. Sometimes, I feel like sometimes that's what we're expected to do. Just think about it. Sometimes we walk into here and we had the worst morning possible, the worst week possible, on top of the worst year possible, and we walk in and we meet somebody, we see somebody, and we love everybody here, and everybody's so friendly and so welcoming, and so, you know, we want to put our best foot forward, and we want to have joy, and we want to smile, and, and sometimes people come up to us and say, so good to see you, how are you this morning? So great, man, you're looking great today, isn't it lovely outside? And you're like, yeah, I'm, it's, I'm doing so good good. I, I lost my job this week, and, but, and my house, and, and my cat croaked, uh, but, you know, I, I'm happy. God is good, and, and sometimes I want to look at people. I'm like, I, I know God is good all the time, but it's okay to cry. It's okay to say I'm not okay. It's okay to Sometimes say, man, life sucks. <laughs> life is hard. I want to smile today, but if I tried, it would look like that creepy guy on the screen. <laughs> Do you have any clothespins for me? That might help me out. Jesus doesn't call us to fake it till we make it. In fact, the New Testament says to rejoice with those who rejoice. And to what else? Weep with those who weep. Solomon, in his words in the book of Ecclesiastes, he reminds us that there's a time for everything. For everything, there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, a time to weep, a time to laugh, a time to mourn, a time to dance. Losing a cat may not be a time for dancing. Or, I don't know, maybe it is. I, I. There's a time for everything. Which leads to defining moment number two. Mordecai's defining moment was a moment of repentance. It's the first time we see in the book any reflection of Jewish heritage and worship to God because he's doing what his ancestors did in hard times. He's realizing, I made a mess. We're in a mess. He tears his clothes. He prays. He fasts. It's the first time we see him acting really like a Jew. It was a defining moment. Now it's Esther's turn, which is defining moment number two, Esther's absence. Listen to what it says. When Esther's young women and her eunuchs came and told her, the king, by the way, had eunuchs serving in the king's court because eunuchs were unable to defile his concubines. And so they were often uh, escorted by these eunuchs, these trusted men who uh, had... Uh, their manhood taken away. Sorry, I know that's a little much. But just so you know, we hear about often the eunuchs in this story. And these were trusted people to the king who walked around with the queen. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai. She hears about Mordecai crying in the streets. She doesn't know why. And she's like, Mordecai, you're embarrassing me. Why are you wearing that shabby shirt? Like, let me help you out. So she sends clothes with her young women to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But 
he wouldn't accept them. She was puzzled. Why aren't you taking my clothes? Why are you dressing like this? You're making me look foolish with my friends. I, why are you making that face? And, and what's going on? Then Esther called for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs. We hear about eunuchs over and over and over in this story who had been appointed to attend to her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what was going on and why it was. She didn't know what was happening. Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money, remember 10,000 talents, a year's worth of taxes that would be taken from the Jews and given to the king that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction that he might show it to Esther and explain it to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathak went and told Esther and Mordecai what, told Mordecai what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called upon, there is but one law to be put to death except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he may live. But as for me, I haven't been called in to come to the king for these last 30 days. Do you guys remember in grade school when you would communicate to people through messengers? You guys remember that? Or was that just me? I remember in grade school, people would, you know, someone wants to sit with somebody at the playground for lunch. And so, we, you know, we write a note and we give it to a messenger and the messenger takes it over to them. Hey, will you sit with so-and-so at the playground? You know, check yes or no. Anybody ever? Okay, maybe that's just my, my generation. Kind of weird. But one time I did this, okay? I remember one time, uh, so they're communicating through messengers. I've, I've done this before. I remember there used to be a skating rink in, in my hometown called the Holiday Skating Rink. And this was a fun place where people would go and, you know, just skating around in circles and listening to music. And there were a bunch of people my age. And there was one time there that uh, at the end of the, the set of songs, you do a, a couple a couple song where you, you find a partner to skate with. And I remember sending my messengers to, to go and ask this person if she would skate with me for the final song. And I was assuming she would say no, because I've never heard, I, I just assumed that. The messengers came back and she said yes. And I was shocked. I didn't know what to do. I was so afraid that I actually almost snuck out the back of the skating rink because I didn't know what to do. Uh, I don't know if you've ever worked through messengers, but here Esther and Mordecai were speaking through messengers. First, her attendants reported that Mordecai was acting a fool out in the courtyard. He was wearing dirty clothes. He was wailing loudly by the gate. His distress distressed her. So she sent out clothing to him to replace his sackcloth. However, it was only when he refused to accept her gift that she attempted to find out what was actually troubling her cousin. She started to realize, no, there's something more going on here. I point this out because I want you to notice how Esther the queen knows nothing about the plot of Haman the horrible. Commentators point out that at this stage in the story, Esther was an absent queen. At one time, she was the apple of the king's eye. 
But five years into this relationship, things had cooled down considerably. And although she held a position of power and prestige, she was actually isolated from the inner workings of Persia. Not only was she out of touch with Mordecai, her cousin, but she also didn't even know about the plot against her own people. And she hadn't even been with her husband, the king, for 30 days. And she wasn't allowed to just go be with the king. She had to be summoned by the king to be with her. And she hadn't been with her husband for 30 days. And so when Mordecai urges her, hey, this is bad. You need to go do something and stop the genocide of the Jewish people. Her response initially is one of hopelessness. She says in verse 11, all the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there's one law to be put to death. She says, I'm not even, I haven't even seen my husband for 30 days. And that means he's likely messing around with his other wives or his concubines. This was an immoral king. She was in a a relationship that was toxic. We talked about that early on. And now she just kind of had been isolated. Maybe she was hurt. Maybe she was damaged. Maybe she was just fed up. She was isolated. Didn't know what was going on in the kingdom. Didn't even read the paper. A message went out through all the kingdom. And she didn't even know about it until she learned about it from her cousin Mordecai. And now she's saying, I want to do something, but I can't. Because if I step in without a summons from the king, I will be killed. And and ancient historians like Herodotus confirm that Persians really did do this and force this law. People were forbidden to approach the king without a summons. The correct protocol was to request an audience with the king through his messenger eunuchs. And then you had to await for an audience with the king. And there were only seven men in the court that were known as the king's friends. And these seven could go to the king whenever they wanted, but not even the king's own wife was not even on the list. This here is a defining moment in the life of Esther. The question is, will Esther continue to isolate from the problems that she sees in the world, from the problems facing her people, from the problems in her own life? Will she hide and will she isolate? Will she retreat in fear? Or will she begin to engage? Should she break the royal protocol Should she risk her life for her people and her kin or should she hide out in hopes that she won't be discovered as a Jew? And I point this out today because the reality is we may not be like Esther in that we are not facing life and death situations every day, but I do believe that you and I every day face very serious dilemmas. Dilemmas where we are forced to ask the same question. Will I isolate or will I engage? Will I retreat or will I fight? Will I stand for what is right or will I bend, will I, you know, bow down to the world system? Will I show that I have a spine and that I have courage or will I retreat into the corner? You and I, every single day, we face hard decisions, When the going gets tough, we can either engage with the problems in front of us or we could ignore reality and sweep things under the rug. But do things actually ever leave when we sweep them under the rug? 
We carry them into our beds at night. We wake up thinking about them in the morning and the things that we try to forget, they just follow us everywhere we go. Far too many Christians though, when we see the problems in the world, when we see some of the the concerns, even in our nation, I believe that far too many Christians are, are hiding out these days. Would you guys agree that we live in challenging times? Would you guys agree with that this morning? I think since 2020, we've all realized that we are living in unprecedented times. These are hard times. These are confusing times. These are polarizing times. There, there's hatred. There's, there's all kinds. And we're ap- approaching an election year. We live in challenging times. And, and, and we know that in the day and age that we live in today, it's, it's getting harder and harder and harder to be a Christian. If you stand for the word of God, you are going to be labeled by the culture as a bigot. You're going to be labeled by the culture as intolerant. You're going to be labeled by the culture as somebody who hates and and discriminates. The the culture is going to try to cancel you. The culture is going to try to shame you. The culture is going to gaslight you. All of those things are quickly coming at you. Christians. And so we live in an era and a time where it's required as a Christian, you can no longer just be half in, half out, lukewarm, getting by, easygoing Christianity. The day and age that we are living in requires true Christians who are truly sold out and truly passionate about the glory of God. Can I get an amen? That's why we're studying Esther. We don't put, pick books of the Bible by just, you know, random. Like I just flip through and be like wherever it lands. All right, we're going to go through Matthew. We prayfully, prayerfully consider what's going on in the world. And that's why we chose Esther. Because I think that Esther is a great cultural commentary. It, it shows what her conflict and her dilemma really mimics a lot of our conflict and our dilemma. And so here's my question for us this morning, Christians in the room, those who believe in Jesus. And if you're not a Christian, make today the day where you confess your sins and come to the Lord Jesus Christ. He welcomes you. He bids you come. And if you belong to him, he has power for you and a purpose for you and a future for you. But here's my call for those of you online and in the AV, the online watching from home, everybody in the room, here's the question. Will the true Christians, will the real Christians please stand up? We live in a time, yes, thank you. Yeah, I like that. I like that. You guys are ready. Uh, Will the brave Christians please stand up? Okay, here's here's what I think about when I turn on the news, which it's hard for me to turn on the news now. It's really hard. What are we going to do as believers about issues that we're facing in society? What is our calling as believers about issues facing our nation? What are we gonna do about the rapid decline of Christianity in places like California, where 80% of churches are plateaued or declining and where churches are leaving the cities because they're no longer welcome there and church buildings are being sold and turned into nightclubs and bars? And and what are we gonna do? How are we going to combat? There is something coming at us. When are the real Christians going to stay? Stand up. What are we going to do about the vulnerability of our children and our grandchildren and the terrible things that, that people often are forcing upon them? This is a trying time that we live in. 
And I believe that Esther's life gives us a lot to consider about our own lives. In the time we live in today, most people are addressing the problems that they see in culture or the problems they see in a place like California by fleeing the state. You guys notice that? How many of you have lost lots of friends to other states? And I don't shame, I've lost friends and family members and, and I'm not against that, I, I understand that. And I, and I, I respect that and I love people and, and, and they've made those decisions and I'm still, you know, I, I totally respect that. And some of you, you're like, yeah, I'm moving to Tennessee next week. Um, nothing wrong with that. But maybe engaging, engaging the problems is more courageous than running. Maybe being advocates for change, risking, Esther had to risk something. She couldn't just be isolated anymore. She was an absent queen. And unfortunately today, we live in a society with many absent Christians. And so the defining moment for her was she needed to have courage. Because courage matters. Defining moments will always require a heavy dose of courage. So what does Esther do? This leads to her defining moment. The queen's resolve, verse 12. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you're gonna escape any more than all the other Jews. If you think because you're the queen that you won't be wrapped up in this, you're mistaken. For if you keep silent at this time, Relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. Mordecai believed in the promises of God that God would come through, even if Esther didn't come through. But your father's house will perish. You will perish. And who knows, Esther, whether you've come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them, here we see her acting like a queen. You ready? Esther goes from being weak and absent and isolated and, and lukewarm to look at her transform in just one verse to finally stepping into her calling and her destiny and her authority as a queen. She says this, then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai. She said, I'm done taking commands from the king. I'm done taking commands from Mordecai. I'm done just letting you know life pass by and sit back and do nothing about the problems that I see. And so here we go. Go, gather all the Jews found in Susa. Get everyone together. This is a queen speaking now. This is not just this pretty uh, woman who was the one a beauty pageant. This is a queen. Go, gather the Jews to be found in Susa. Get them all together. Hold a fast on my ha behalf. Get them praying. Get them weeping. Get them wailing, covered in sackcloth and ashes, repenting like, the, like Joel said to repent, to rend their hearts. Don't let them eat anything or drink anything for three days. Night and day, call upon God. And, and, and I and my young women will do the same thing. We'll fast as you do. Then I am gonna go to the king. And though it's against the law, if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything Esther had ordered him. 
the queen's resolve. And notice how I transitioned here from calling her Esther to the queen, because that's who she is. She isn't just a beautiful thing to look at. She is the queen of Persia, the most powerful nation in the world. It was time to begin acting like the person she really was. Who was she? She was a Jew first, a worshiper of Yahweh first. Who was she? She was the queen of Persia. She had authority, she had power, she had a calling, and it was time for her to step into who she really was. And so during this exchange with her cousin, Mordecai points out, hey, Esther, you've got nothing to lose, but you got everything to gain. Because if Haman's plan isn't stopped, you are going to be discovered as well, and you're gonna be killed along with your people, along with your kin. And so your silence, Esther, is going to gain you nothing, but your courage, Esther, may gain you everything. That's what I believe is the message for us today. Our silence gains us nothing. Our courage could gain us everything. Esther was made for such a time as this. This was her defining moment. She was being forced to choose between identifying herself with God's people and God's way and God's uh, love or continuing to live as a pagan in the king's court. Saving her people would mean stepping out, revealing her true identity, risking her own life, and even admitting to the fact that she wasn't living honestly. She wasn't actually living like a Jew. She was living lukewarm. And she'd identify herself in that moment as a target of destruction. She would say, just as you're gonna kill everybody, you're also gonna have to kill me because under Haman's decree, I too must perish. And so at this moment, Esther had to decide who she really was. And I think her decision is summed up perfectly in these words. If I perish, I perish. Did you guys see Esther blossom right there? Did you see how she blossomed from being one foot in the world, one foot in the faith to all in with the Lord? That's what's missing in the church today. That's what's missing in Christianity today. We live in a time where we can no longer just get by being half in and half out. Your faith is going to cost you something. It may cost you friends. It may cost you your reputation. One day in the future, it may cost you your own freedom. We are approaching a time where faith is costly. Standing for what is right is costly. We live in an age where evil is described as good and good is described as evil. And so when you stand for what is good, you will be labeled and you will be targeted and you will be shamed and you will even maybe be attacked. And so what I'm gonna warn you of right now is that the days of Christianity where we can be complacent, half in, half out, cultural Christians, those days are long gone. Long gone. The day and age that we're in is a day and age where we decide, am I in or am I out? Am I willing to risk, 
willing to risk it all? Am I willing to be courageous even if it costs me something? And so church, I encourage you today, choose this morning, choose the path of life. Choose this morning to follow Jesus with your whole life, to be obedient, to surrender to him and to stand up and make a difference and to watch the world change around you as God ignites a faith in you that cannot be stopped and he changes the world through you. When your defining moment comes, in conclusion, I want you to remember these three things. Number one is, remember that God gives grace to the humble. Mordecai instituted a defining moment by humbling himself. Repentance, confession, weeping over the sins of his nation, weeping over the sins of his people, weeping over the sins of the past. He knew they were exiles because of their sin. He knew they were struggling because of their sin. And now he was wrapped up in the sins of Persia and all he could do was weep. I believe that change requires us to be humble, to rend our hearts, to rend our garments, to fast, to weep, to even mourn. And so Esther called on her people to soften their hearts, to pray and to fast. Is your heart soft? Are your hands open? Number two, God commends the courageous. What we see in this story is not only is there humility, but there's courage. The number one most repeated command in the entire Bible is fear not. Your defining moment is going to require courage. Your own reputation may be on the line. Your, your, your own, the question is, are you gonna engage when things are costly or are you going to run? And are you gonna stand for what is right or are you going to retreat? And finally, number three, God prepared you for such a time as this. When your defining moment comes, be humble, be courageous, and trust that God will make a way. God, even though his name may feel like nowhere in your life, his fingerprints are everywhere. Perhaps you were made for this very moment. It was time for you. This was tailor-made for you to step out in faith and say those words, if I perish, I perish. Are we ready to be bold this morning? Are we ready to be all in this morning? Are we ready to be the people that Jesus has called us to be? Light in the darkness, salt of the earth, a, a, a kingdom that, that is overcoming the, the kingdom of darkness, the church of God that cannot be defeated by the kingdom of Satan. Jesus promises to build his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. And he promises to come back in power and glory because he is a king unlike any other. And we can trust him with our lives and we can trust him with our eternal destiny. Will you pray with me? Father God, I just wanna say thank you again. Thank you for making us, thank you for loving us. Thank you for the story of Esther, her boldness, her courage, her willingness to put her life on the line. Lord, I pray that you would show us where we need to be bold. Maybe it's time to stand up and do what's right with our family. Maybe it's time to stand up and do what's right with work. Maybe it's time to stand up and do what's right with these things in our lives that we 
know are disobedient and wrong and pulling us away from you and it's time to put them aside and follow you to repent. Maybe it's time to stand up and do what's right and making a difference in this community and in this nation, in this state. Use us. Here we are. Use us. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.